Well, good morning, everyone. Hey, my name's Brad. I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho Ridge. And um, in high school, you know, we're in the gymnasium, so I thought a little bit about it this morning. I thought, you know, let's just throw it back to when I was in high school and I played high school basketball. Uh, this is a photo of our team from the early 90s. We were the Saints. Uh, you can see here, I had uh, a fairly big ego in high school. You can see the number that I chose in the early 90s, who I was trying to emulate. But uh, I was by far the worst player on this team, like by far. I didn't even remember that we were taking a school uh, picture that day and Nadi didn't even wear my jersey. Um, some, of these, some of these students went on to play college ball in like big name universities in the states and other places. Sometime later, members of this, not, the, not the, the Saints, not our squad, but sometime later, one of the guys actually played in the NBA uh, way after I graduated from the school. But me, I warmed the bench most of the time. That was my job. I had one other important job on the team, and that was if we were playing a team that had a bunch of really aggressive, tall guys, I was gonna, I came off the bench and I would be the one who took the charge for the team. You know how that's a, a, when the other team is coming down the court, you stand your ground and if they knock you over and you're not moving, they get a foul and then your team gets the ball. So that was my full-time job on the team was to get pushed over by other people. Because, like, look at the picture there, how much taller pretty much everybody else on the team was than I was. Ours was the smallest school in the largest athletic association in Canada, in Toronto. And our school had only 300 students in it total for all of the high school. And so we didn't even have enough boys to fill the boys' basketball team for the high school. We had to recruit some girls. Even the girls were better than I was on the team. But I took charges really, really well. Because the other guys, they could block shots. That was their thing. They were really, really tall. So I got almost no points the entirety of my basketball career because, like, I'm just not tall enough and I'm not fast enough to be a point guard. So I took charges and sat on the bench. And that was about all that I did. And the reason that I dug this picture up from the archives and bring this up, being in the gym today, and talk about it, uh, about shots being blocked, because it got me thinking about the question of prayer. And sometimes, do you feel like when you pray, what kinds of things might block or hinder your prayers in some significant way? Do you ever feel like you're praying, and you're praying, and you're praying, and you go up for a shot, and boom, it just gets blocked? And it's like, oh, man, did God even hear what I was saying? Like, what, what was that all about? Your prayers never feel like they quite get off the mark. One of the challenges of prayer is that it can actually be a hard thing to swallow, that notion of feeling like your prayers aren't being attended to or listened to. And it can be hard to swallow that your prayers might not be getting answered or might be blocked, not because God is actually reluctant, but because of attitudes and actions in your own heart. Sometimes unanswered prayers say less about God than they do actually about what's going on in your own life and about me and my character. Well, here at Jericho, uh, we're in a season where we're focusing on emphasizing 
and growing in prayer and learning more about prayer and how we would pray together and individually. And whether you've been at this for 65 years or whether you've been at it 6.5 minutes or whether you're in a place where you think, I'm not 100% sure that I believe in God and that He would hear or attend to anything any of us would say, we invite you to join us as we explore what it means together to pray and to grow in a vibrant conversation with God. And when we do this, we're centering our times together in Matthew chapter 6 around the Lord's Prayer and what it means to pray uh, as Jesus taught us to pray. And so if you have your Bibles or your devices, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And in that passage, Jesus' followers come to him and say to him, could you please teach us how to pray? Teach us what to pray about. Teach us to engage with God in a meaningful way. And Jesus wonderfully and graciously obliges and says, yeah, I would do that. And he very specifically says to them, pray like this. Gives them quite clear instructions on it. And so we've been exploring each phrase in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 5, and reminding ourselves that really the Lord's Prayer is not like a mantra that we need to just sort of uh, somehow work ourselves into endless repetition of it until maybe God gets the point that we're trying to get His attention. But it's more like a model helping us think about what are the things that we should include in meaningful conversation with God as we approach Him. So we're close to the end of the Lord's Prayer now, and we have our one phrase today and then only one more phrase that we're going to look at uh, two weeks from today. Because remember, next week we're actually not here at the event center. We are down um, at uh, the Wagner Hills Women's Campus on 216th Street. So don't show up here. You've got postcards to remind you. Put that in your phones now. Put that postcard up in somewhere where you see it and we'll remember it. And uh, next weekend we'll be down together there serving at 1030 and you'll bring stuff for potluck. So, uh, in two weeks, we'll pick up again with finishing off our series on the Lord's Prayer. And in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this in the New Living Translation I'm reading. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. So we've been walking through these phrases one at a time, and today we come to the only phrase that Jesus actually cares to elaborate more on. He immediately, as soon as verse 13 finishes, gives us yet another repetition or another window on what he means by this little phrase, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Jesus says, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But, conditional, if you refuse to forgive others, your Father in heaven will not forgive your sins. In other words, you might get shot blocked. There would be things intentionally that you have chosen to harbor or to do 
that would prevent God's mercy and forgiveness from flowing into your lives. Not because God doesn't desire to extend His forgiveness and graciousness to you, but because you have refused to extend that to other people. That's how seriously God takes relationships. If you or I refuse to forgive another person when they have wronged us, that blocks the flow of divine mercy into your life and mine. And we see this traced through in this concept at other places in the Bible, that there are choices and actions that you or I can make that actually hinder what God might desire to do in our lives, things that would actually block or hinder your prayer conversation with God. So, here's a list of uh, four of them from different places in the Scripture, and notice the relational tone to all of them. They mirror this same known um, concept of forgiveness. So, the first is from 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says very specifically that if you have unforgiveness, bitterness, and disunity in your marriage relationship, that your prayers can be blocked. The reason for this is that sin is relational in nature. Sin is not about breaking a rule. Sin is about intentionally damaging a relationship in some way, either with God or with another person. And so it stands to reason that if you harbor unforgiveness, bitterness, disunity in your most intimate relationship, that marriage relationship, that's a bad thing. 1 Peter 3, verse 7, in the message translation says, this is the same for husbands. Be good husbands to your wives. Honor your wives. In the new life of God's grace, your equals, your partners. Treat your wives as equals so that your prayers will not run aground. The image here is that if you don't work together, if you're married and you don't work together with a spirit of deep forgiveness and deep honor towards the other person and mutuality in your relationship, you create the conditions where you wrong each other. And let's be honest, in a marriage relationship, we're so close to the other person that it's not a case of if we wrong and hurt that person. It's really a case of when that happens. So what do we do when that happens? If we allow that to persist and continue and to take root, Peter says that type of treatment, especially for husbands of wives, takes root, watch out. That is going to impact your prayer relationship and conversation with God. Your prayers will run aground. You say, yeah, but she's always the one that's running up the visa bill. Yeah, but they're the person that's always doing this. Yeah, but, you know, I'm... Hey, listen. There's never a completely innocent party in a marriage relationship when you're in a conflict with that person, oftentimes. What this text is saying is do not let unforgiveness run you aground in your marriage. There's areas where one of you needs to do a better job honoring the other, name it, begin to embrace it, 
Begin to ask for forgiveness where it's needed. Work on it. Don't let disunity or unforgiveness in your marriage block your prayers. Don't let it, your prayers run aground strictly because you don't have the humility to say to your spouse, you know what? On these issues, I was wrong, and would you forgive me? Second thing the Bible says can clearly block your prayers. Harboring unconfessed sins. Do you ever feel like you get into a time when you're trying to pray and God brings something, an area of your life or someone to your mind? And maybe a conversation where you didn't speak the truth fully or a person that you're harboring resentment towards and you think to yourself, you know what, God, would you not bother me with that right now? I'm trying to pray. I'm trying to come to you with my needs. And why are you bugging me with this thought about a relationship that's off kilter or that conversation that I had with that other person? I'm not interested in revisiting that. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, then the Lord would not have listened to my prayers. Do you want God to listen to your prayer? Work hard at keeping a clean slate. One of the books that I like on prayer, because it's written for guys, uh, and most prayer books are not. They're all this flowery language and really long. This is like super short, to the point. It's called Prayer Coach. And uh, the author, Jim Nicodem, uh, Nicodem rather, writes from an athletic perspective. He uses a little acronym for prayer that I find helpful. He says, prayer is like a chat. The C is for confession. He says, just start there. Like, get it out of the way because make sure there's nothing hindering your conversation with God. C-H-A-T. So the C is for confession. Simple prayer. Start time, your time of prayer with God saying, God, is there anything that I need to get out of the way first before we go on in this conversation as we start? And then the H is for honor. A is for ask. And T is for thank. Chat. So I like that acronym because it positions that notion of asking for forgiveness and confessing any sin that's in my heart at the beginning of the prayer time. Psalm 66, 18, if I cannot confess the sin that I was intentionally harboring in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. We'll talk more about how to process that uh, in a few minutes. But for now, just recognize that on an individual level and also on a corporate or even national level, the notion of continuing down a pattern of known sin shot blocks your prayers. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 59, God sends a prophet Isaiah to speak to the nation of Israel, and he says to them, listen, it is your sins that have cut you off from God. Because of your sins, as a nation, God has turned away from you and will not listen anymore. Significant. And they chose not to listen and be attentive. Think about the ways, even that prayers, if you look at prayers in the Old Testament and trace through, so many of them are prayers of repentance, saying, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves collectively, turn from their sins, and then I will heal their land. Sins can cut us off from God, individually, corporately, 
as a community? Are there things that we as Jericho need to repent of? So unforgiveness, unconfessed sins. The third thing that can block your prayers might not come to your mind immediately, but it's complicit participation in injustice. Say what? <laughs> you see, all through the Bible, God indicates that He has a very special place in His heart for widows, for orphans, for those who are oppressed, those who are on the margins, who might be overlooked. And one of the most under-assessed places where your prayers might be blocked is how you treat people who are of a different socioeconomic status than you. How do you treat people who are poor? Look at what God says again through the prophet Isaiah. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I'm not going to look. You offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Then, when you lift up your hands in prayer, God says, I will listen and hear you. Gang, this is one thing I love about the community uh, here at Jericho, that there's a shared heart that God has given to us to nurture and advance for justice and for those who are on the margins. So I love that every year for the last 10 years, we've sent a team to Guatemala to serve people and love people there. And I want to honor those who have uh, really invested heavily in that. People like Sue and Curtis and their family and Tammy Smethurst and Ralph uh, Terpstra who went before them because they have worked hard to bring the cause of widows and orphans to our attention and allow those of the rest of us to participate and lean in on that. I want to honor people like Peter Ash and those doing work in Tanzania to bring justice to people with albinism who are oppressed. I want to honor Lorne and the work that he does leading more than a roof in uh, providing supportive care to those in our society that are on the margins and could fall through the cracks. I want to honor Wendy, who faithfully uh, looks after and looks out for Alice DeRosio, our senior saint here at Jericho. Like, I want to honor those of you who have loved and supported Dustin and his family in this journey and will continue to do so. Like, when you help people who are in need, you're doing something precious to the heart of God. And so on the flip side, God says, watch out. If your heart towards people who are on the margins grows cold and hard and the full sum of your time and financial resources and your thoughts and your energy is directed on you and on your concerns, you are in danger of becoming complicit in injustice. And God does not hear the prayers of those who do not care about the things that He cares about. We have been entrusted with a lot here at Jericho Ridge. You think, oh, we're not that big of a church. We've been entrusted with a lot of things. And one of the things that then is responsibility on our part is to continue to press into God's heart for widows and orphans and widowers and those who need justice in our world. That's why at Jericho, 
We give away every year, right away from our budget, from the giving that you do to Jericho, we give away 10% of it right away to organizations and people who are working for justice and working to see people brought to wholeness all over the world. It's our goal and our, our part of our ministry to help alleviate injustice in the world. So that's a whole sermon in and of itself, so I'm going to move on. But you get the fact that if you don't want to participate in that, you need to be attentive to the fact of your prayers may be hindered. So number four, another thing that can block your prayers is active disobedience to God's voice. If you know that God has asked you to do something and you say, no, I don't think I really want to do that, do you think He's going to entrust you with another assignment? No. Get going. If God said to you, I, need, I want you to forgive that person, and you keep saying, oh, Lord, my calendar is just really full right now. Like, I don't know if I have the time for a coffee. Like, maybe if after we got through spring soccer, or like, at least let's get spring break out of the way, and then like, when we get back, then I'll do it. No. Like, if you're living in a place where you know that God has given you an assignment, something to do, just do it. Like, don't wait for it. Because then God's not going to want to continue to give you assignments. Those who are faithful with little, then He'll give you much. But be faithful with the little first in your obedience. And so if you're living in a space of active disobedience to something that God's clearly asked you to do, friend, that's a shot block on your prayers. Look at what God says in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12 and 13. They made their hearts as hard as stone, so they could not hear the messages that the Lord had sent them by their spirit. So since they refused to listen when I called to them, I would not listen when they called to me, says the Lord. Do you see the pattern here? If you refuse to listen to God, God gets to choose to refuse to listen to you. Refuse to forgive others, and God says, you know what, with the measure of forgiveness that you use, I'll just pour that out into your own life. So if you're not using any forgiveness, I, uh, that's going to not allow me to pour forgiveness into your life. With the measure you use, I'm going to dole it out to you. So friends, don't let any of these things hinder your prayer conversation. Hearing God's voice, acting out of a place of remaining in responsive obedience, walking with each other as a community in a way that's untainted by the stain of bitterness or unforgiveness or any of that. So, how do we actually do that? How do we, how do we make sure that we're walking in places of forgiveness and openness to the things that God is teaching us? Let me suggest four things, and we'll move quickly through these. These are personal action steps. The first one is in order to, to stay in a place of um, forgiveness and with a soft heart towards God, take a regular spiritual inventory. Take a regular spiritual inventory. Like, assess what's going on. I love my friends in 12-step programs. If you are familiar with 12-step programs, step number four is make a searching and fearless moral inventory. Yikes. What does that mean? 
Well, it sounds harder in some ways than it is. The way I like to think about this is simply asking God on a regular basis, God, is there anything growing in my life that you need to weed out? Anything that you need to get rid of? Are there any areas of unforgiveness growing in my life? Anything that I need to pay attention to? Any people that I'm not doing my part at living in unity and peace with? Because here's the thing, you cannot change what you don't see and acknowledge as a problem. That's the basis of step number four in the 12-step program, is getting you to actually see what's going on in your life. And if you cannot see it and identify it as a problem, you're not going to be able to take steps to meaningfully change it. And this is one of the beautiful things that prayer actually does. Prayer serves as like a constant recalibration for our soul. In prayer, we keep asking, God, I desire to receive your full and complete forgiveness flowing into my life. Is there anything that would prevent that from happening? I love the way that Psalm 139 invites this question. Verse 23, it says, search me, God. Like, get a spotlight and just turn it in on my soul. Test me. Test my motives. Test my thoughts, not just my actions. Know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. The challenge I find when I step into a space like that is that I often find God's list of what I need to change and my list are very, very different lists. My list is usually quite short, and God's list tends to be a little bit longer and has things on it that I don't want to pay attention to. But if I don't, if I don't know and see it, if I don't ask God and others around me, trusted friends, to point out, hey, do you see anything in this scenario in my life that I need to repent of, that I need to walk away from and do something about. Not just knowing about it, but doing something about it. Then you need to move on to number two. So number one, take a regular spiritual inventory. Number two, one of the best things that you can do to keep the flow of forgiveness coming into your life from the Lord and into the lives of those around you is just get better at repenting. Become a better repenter. Author uh, Bob Sorge, in his book, Secrets of the Secret Place, reminds us that radical, rapid repentance is the best way to ensure that your prayers are unhindered. Just become a better repenter. Just a little bit better of a repenter this year than last year. A step into it just a little bit more than you have last month. Because we need to become good repenters, not only of the things that are obvious to us, clear areas where we've offended God and others, but also those areas of our hearts that are a little bit less obvious, those sneaky places, those dark corners where we harbor sin. Sins that we're not often good at naming, sins like unbelief, sins like pride, sins like selfish ambition or rebellion. Ask God to search your heart and then just get better at repenting of those things. Because when we repent, we receive the forgiveness that God so graciously offers to us. Look at the latter part of Psalm 66. It says, if I hadn't confessed into my heart, the Lord would not have heard me. But 
The good news is God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. See, the conditional nature of the pray like this prayer, if you forgive others, God will forgive you. It's not a threat that God is issuing. It's simply a reminder of the incredible riches of the storehouses of God's mercy and kindness and His love that He desires to pour out into your heart and mine. And so don't do anything stupid, silly to block that or hinder it in any way. So in order to practice and walk in forgiveness, first take a regular inventory, see if there's anything or anyone you need to forgive, extend forgiveness to or receive forgiveness from. Secondly, become a better repenter. And third, right-size the offense. Right-size the offense. Sometimes when we press into a conversation on forgiveness, I hear people say things like, well, that person really hurt me. And I say, well, Talk, let's talk a little bit more about that. And I listen more carefully to the story, and I think to myself, really? You're offended by that? Like, you need to grow a thicker skin, my friend. <laughs> so, well, that person, you know, they looked at me funny during worship. Well, that person posted on Facebook and something, and they didn't acknowledge my contribution to the group. Well, that person didn't invite me to the thing that they were doing with those other things. Gang, let me tell you, as your pastor, not every hurt that you experience in your life requires that you confront the other person about it. Some things you just need to get better at not taking offense about. 